Hi, and welcome to Cause High Viz. My name is Jacqueline Smith, and I'm a senior associate in the construction team at Cause Chambers Westgarth. Earlier this week, we hosted a breakfast seminar looking at when is arbitration the answer. We were fortunate to have an expert panel for this interactive discussion, including the Honourable Justice Croft from the Supreme Court of Victoria, Albert Monachino, QC, and Cause litigation partner Bronwyn Lincoln. Joe Barbaro, a partner in the Cause construction team, chaired this expert panel, and we now cross to the session itself. Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to, uh, on behalf of the partners and staff of Cause James Westgar, to our panel session today on when is arbitration the answer? Commercial perspectives on using arbitration and related trends in dispute resolution. Probably no better topic on a bright, sunny Melbourne morning than uh, looking at the challenges of dispute resolution um, and uh, the options that are available to us. Um, we're very, uh, my name is Joseph Barber, I'm a partner in the construction projects team. Uh, I've got practice in dispute resolution uh, and transaction work, and um, it's, it's my pleasure with my partners that we have such an esteemed panel, which I'll introduce in a moment to uh, support this uh, conversation today. The, the, the reason for uh, focusing on this particular topic is that um, in our experience, dispute resolution um, is increasingly important in uh, commercial transactions and the business environment in which we and our clients operate. There are so many different contexts in which so many of the members in this room participate, um, whether you be uh, developers who are buying, selling land, uh, building developments, selling apartments, whether you're contractors who are supplying, whether you're a technology provider who's seeking to protect their particular um, IP, whether you're a supplier, whether you're a government and you're procuring, um, there are so many contexts in which um, tension and disputes can arise. And increasingly we're asked to look at um, dispute resolution within that commercial context. Um, we need to consider factors such as the speed with which disputes can be resolved. Um, not only because we want the answer faster, um, so much uh, a trend in modern society, but also because we know Usually the longer things take, the more they cost. We also seek finality. Um, lawyers might intellectually love telling their clients about the appeals process and the layers of the courts and the exciting points they might take to the High Court. Um, I suspect most, uh, most of our clients are probably interested in just having the thing done and sorted. Um, the financial impact uh, and the reputational impact on businesses uh, and for government is, uh, is considerable and uh, in the context of reporting on financial performance, the significant um, scrutiny um, which is placed on organisations with media and much more attention to the way in which we perform, <coughs> the ability to actually resolve disputes effectively, commercially, quickly um, becomes more important than ever. 
So, we don't come to this um, particular um, session today with any pre-determined uh, outcome or answer. Um, I don't seek or we don't seek to sell arbitration as the answer to dispute resolution in every context, but rather to explore um, how arbitration and in contrast to arbitration, litigation and other forms represent um, dispute resolution techniques that can be extremely effective. So, um, I certainly find uh, as a front-end practitioner that clients increasingly ask us to look at the options. Um, they increasingly look for flexibility. There is uh, a trend to tailor uh, dispute resolution to the particular subject matter and the particular disputes that might arise. Um, but there's also a very significant proportion, I think, of um, those in the industry who treat dispute resolution uh, in their transactions as very much the boilerplate clause at around number 40 in the contract. And, uh, and it just sort of rolls on from contract to contract. And we'll seem to, to challenge that thinking. Um, arbitration is not new. Um, and so um, what we seek to explore today are the trends in the practices and the way in which it's used. And the court system, we also know, is increasingly challenged by the alternative dispute resolution methods that are out there, whether they be arbitration, expert determination, or adjudication. So the court's certainly not been standing still. So on our panel today, we have um, really the pleasure of a range of perspectives and experiences from the judiciary to arbitrators to practitioners, um, both the, the lawyers and, and counsel. I'll start by introducing His Honour, Justice Croft. Um, his Honour is the judge in charge of the arbitration lists in the Supreme Court of Victoria. Prior to his appointment as judge of the Supreme Court, Justice Croft practised extensively in property and commercial law and was an arbitrator mediator in construction and commercial disputes, both domestically and internationally. Uh, he was on IANA, Grade 1 arbitrator, a member of the International Panel of Commercial Arbitrators, Australian Centre for International Arbitration, which is the KICA, and the Singapore International Arbitration Centre as well. We also have with us the far event, Albert Monachino QC. Albert practices as a barrister, arbitrator, and mediator. He was appointed senior counsel in 2010 and has over 25 years' experience in commercial dispute resolution. He's president of the Australian branch of the Chartered Institute of Arbitrators, and he's a chartered, chartered arbitrator. Uh, himself, as well as an accredited advanced mediator, and often also practices as counsel advocate in arbitration in court. And my partner, Bronwyn Lincoln, uh, who is in the litigation group here, practices in international commercial arbitration and commercial litigation with a focus on cross border and multi jurisdiction disputes. Uh, Bronwyn is also an international arbitrator, so um, approaches these things from both perspectives. I want to keep the, um, the presentation to um, the conversation with the panel members for about 30 to 35 minutes and then I'm going to open it up to the floor and welcome any, any questions. Um, I appreciate that there's varying experience within the room in terms of your familiarity with uh, arbitration litigation process, but I, I recognise there's a number of lawyers and in-house counsel in the room. Um, we'll probably take a, a little bit of the, uh, the way in which these processes uh, work as 
read and understood, but I will ask a few questions that at least give people um, a little bit more background and understanding before we delve into the uh, commercial and practical perspectives of the dispute resolution techniques. And on that, um, on that front, I might ask you, Bronwyn, perhaps, uh, just to, to kick off. I think um, maybe for those of um, the audience who are less familiar with arbitration, you might just give us a snapshot of how you know, arbitration differs from litigation and perhaps even just set the scene on what is a domestic versus an international arbitration because I think that theme will emerge as important in this discussion. Thanks, John. Good morning, everyone. Um, I think the primary difference between litigation and arbitration is that to um, resolve a dispute through arbitration, you actually need to have a contract which has an arbitration clause in it to start with. So it's an agreement between the parties to resolve a dispute that is outside of local domestic courts. Um, that's number one, which of course why it's so important to talk about it up front and not when, uh, when things all fall apart. In terms of the process, the court of course has civil procedure rules, so you have a um, prescribed course and there are case management techniques and there's some flexibility within that, which I'm sure His Honour will speak about. Um, arbitration, uh, on the other hand, the parties have the opportunity to actually be part of it. It's their process. So as a party, you work with the arbitrator um, to look at how you might best approach a dispute. There are some fairly standard procedures that you would look at, but you have that opportunity to tailor something that suits what you need. Um, and that's a big selling point of it. Uh, in terms of uh, domestic and international arbitration, um, again, the main reason that you would choose international arbitration is for enforceability. Because if you have a judgment of a local court and you seek to take it somewhere else in the world, um, you can often not enforce. Uh, or you need to run the case again in the foreign jurisdiction in order to get, order to get a judgment in that jurisdiction. Whereas with a foreign arbitral award, um, there is a convention called the New York Convention where there are I think there are 155 plus countries at the moment who are signatories or members, it's growing all the time. Um, but subject to some limited rights of appeal, you can take your award, which is what you get through in the arbitration process, and have it recognised and enforced as a judgement in that foreign jurisdiction. And that's very, very important when you're trying to protect an international transaction or investment. So in that context, I mean, two themes that emerge there is the um, finality and enforcement. Uh, you mentioned the appeal rights and then um, the ability to actually enforce your judgment in different jurisdictions. Uh, Judge, you, you're in charge of the, um, the arbitration list in the Supreme Court. I mean, what's, what's its purpose? If, if, if arbitrations are final and enforceable, um, what comes to you? Uh, well, we in Victoria, we're one of the first jurisdictions in the world to set up a specialist arbitration list with a, a, a judge dedicated managing the list. Uh, the purpose of the arbitration list in the context of modern arbitration legislation domestically and internationally is to uh, facilitate and support arbitration. The, the courts uh, 20, 30 years ago, perhaps a bit, uh, probably a reasonable estimation, 
regarded arbitration as an inferior jurisdiction which needed to be supervised, and that was very, very unhelpful. There was a trend that existed right through the common law world, it wasn't something peculiar to Australia. But as uh, modern arbitration legislation has developed in England particularly and now in Australia in recent years, the role of the courts is to do things like uh, appoint arbitrators if, if the parties can't agree and the whole sort of arbitration procedural process uh, comes unstuck, uh, to uh, particularly focusing on enforcement uh, if we, we get applications from uh, overseas countries to, to enforce foreign arbitral awards. We enforced the uh, award against uh, Gutnik at, at the end of 2015. Uh, that was a, an award of a Singapore tribunal. Uh, and and that, that's very important. So it's, it's facilitating the process and facilitating and enforceability. And Bronwyn mentioned the New York Convention. The New York Convention is the, really the cornerstone of the success of international arbitration. Without the New York Convention and the ability to enforce foreign arbitral awards throughout the world, the world trading system really couldn't operate. You can enforce judgments to some extent, but the ease of enforceability of foreign arbitral awards is uh, uh, very important. It's, 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 it's uh, far more easy than enforcing judgments of uh, national courts. So, in a nutshell, that's basically what we do. And do many, um, are there any appeals from arbitration? and maybe contrasting the domestic versus the well, international? Well, the international regime in Australia is established by the Commonwealth Act, and the effect of the Commonwealth Act is to adopt the UNSATRAL, you know, United Nations Commission on International Trade Law Model Law. And the model law philosophy and the philosophy of the Commonwealth legislation is, is, is really no merits appeals. Uh, so in a number of cases in Australia in recent times, the TCL case which went to the High Court, uh, in that case, and in a number of federal court decisions, and ours. Thank you. my um, headphones so I can just. Up a merits appeal as a denial of natural justice and sort of manipulate the process to effect, effectively get a merits appeal. So, in a number of my decisions and a number of decisions all around the country, uh, the courts have stressed that there are no merits appeals. We're, we're here to facilitate and enforce, basically, uh, internationally, no merits appeals. The domestic legislation is slightly different for, I think, fairly obvious policy reasons, which, under the domestic legislation, parties can agree to what is, in effect, a merits appeal. But you don't see it very often. So the two, domestic, the domestic and international regimes tend to be the same, and it's no merits appeals. So I think that, that last point's a good one in terms of uh, the capacity for parties to design the appeal mm -hmm. process, perhaps, arbitration. We'll come back to that later in terms of the way in which arbitration clauses might be written. Um, Albert, so we've talked here about the finality and the uh, appeal process. Um, what, what, what can arbitration do or not do that the courts can do? So are you left, if you, if you just go down the arbitration path, are there remedies and, and um, avenues in terms of the relief an arbitrator can give you that um, uh, you're forced to go to court in some scenarios. Uh, I, I wouldn't suggest that an arbitrator can grant relief that a court can't grant, but uh, one advantage of arbitration over the court system is that um, the uh, proceedings are confidential 
uh, if you have a particular concern, it might be a sensitive commercial dispute, uh, it might be a sensitive uh, involving a very um, sensitive, uh, high dollar value commercial dispute between family members, um, Jewish family, and uh, the last thing they wanted to do was to uh, um, up, uh, sorry, litigate that dispute in court because there'd be a member of the press sitting in the back of the court um, reporting on what, what was happening. So they decided to do it by arbitration. Uh, it's confidential, so that's, a, that's, a, that's a, 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 an advantage. Uh, in the international spaces, as Bronwyn mentioned, enforceability is the advantage, and indeed in, for international disputes, uh, litigation is uh, alternative dispute resolution. Um, the, the main game is arbitration. But the other uh, advantage, uh, perhaps, that uh, arbitration offers is um, flexibility, uh, appointing your, your arbitrator, your decision maker, you don't have that that luxury. If you go to litigation, you, it's, uh, you might get the, the judge that's particularly suited to your, your dispute, you might not. In, in um, uh, arbitration, you, uh, you can, and the parties, if they agree, can um, obviate that risk, and there's also flexibility. Um, arbitra arbitrators are the servant of the parties, if, if they agree. If they instruct the arbitrator to do something, the arbitrator must, must do it. Um, so you can get an arbitrator to conduct your arbitration between five o'clock at night and midnight, um, five nights a week. Um, you can get uh, a leisurely timetable to suit the parties. Uh, judges, while they, especially Justice Croft, quite accommodating to reasonable requests of the parties, ultimately they're, they're um, um, uh, organs of the state and they have a public duty not only to, the, to, to, to you, the parties, but also the other litigants in the queue. And so that, that may uh, constrain them from um, acceding to, to every request of the parties. We'll sit at half. Sorry? We'll sit at half. <laughs> I'll take you up on that. There you go. It's, it's on tape as well. Um, can I just respond to that? Um, I, I agree entirely with Albert's comments in relation to confidentiality and things like that. But I think, uh, Joseph, you made reference to the courts responding to dispute resolution. I think in recent years the development of commercial courts throughout the country has been very significant. Uh, and there's been a bit of a sort of piggybacking and development. Our arbitration became very flexible, we had chess clock arbitration, things like that. The courts sort of picked that up and arbitration lagged behind a bit and then they catch up. And it's, it's a, I think it's a very healthy com competition cycle in a sense. But putting aside international enforcement and things like confidentiality, uh, and the fact that with litigation you don't choose your judge. Uh, I, I don't think there's anything a commercial court can't do that arbitrators can do. Uh, we, we can be as flexible as you like, we can run chess clock proceedings, we can sit any, any hours that are convenient. Um, and I, I think there's been a, a fundamental change in the way the courts perceive themselves in recent times. I think we see ourselves as serving the community in dispute resolution. You, you, we're not, we don't see our role as to simply hear cases and deliver judgments. You, you won't get any uh, proceeding to trial in a commercial court without being forced to mediation, unless there's some good reason not to. Uh, so it, it's a very flexible procedure. Uh, and I emphasise, you know, we're, we're in the business of serving the parties in dispute resolution. So I think there's, there's not a lot of difference, potentially, uh, subject to 
uh, in arbitration confidentiality and appointing your, your judge in effect. Could I just make one comment there because um, I agree with all of that, but you just need to be aware that if you want to go to association with a party that's from somewhere else in the world, um, unless you stipulate in your contract and you choose arbitration, that you may not end up in the courts here in Australia which have all of these um, procedures and, and offer all of the flexibility and the case management techniques that you see in arbitration. But instead, you might find yourself in the Mongolian court or in the Brazilian court or in a New Guinea court. Um, and they may have very different processes to what you're used to. Um, and they may have processes which, to you, don't seem entirely fair or the integrity of the courts might be in question. So, um, when you're looking at an international transaction, that's another reason why you look at arbitration, because you choose the forum up front, um, and you minimise the risk of actually ending up running proceedings perhaps in a foreign language in a country that you're not familiar with. Thanks. So, there seems to be a common um, acceptance that there's a good degree of flexibility in the courts and in arbitration to resolve um, disputes sense to suit what is before the decision maker. I, I think we'd perhaps interested to hear in some of the ways in which that is effectively working in your experience. Um, and I'll ask you perhaps to look at, um, for example, complex disputes involving expert evidence and some of the trends um, that are emerging there and the ways in which you, perhaps each as you, in your capacity as decision makers, uh, arbitrators and the judge, um, are using um, different techniques to, to deal with complex and expensive and time-consuming expert evidence. I might ask you all the <coughs> Well, uh, one, one option, or, 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 uh, in, in complex cases, I've, I've done this as counsel, but not as, as arbitrator, where there, are, um, there might be, in, in, a, in a construction dispute, there might be uh, different types of um, experts required, structural engineers, other, other engineers, um, other areas of expertise, you might have three different um, expert disciplines, and um, the uh, both the court, well, the tri arbitrators have been doing, especially in the international arena for some time, and, and more recently, courts have been doing it, appointing uh, a technical facilitator. So it's a, a general expert who will then conduct the uh, the the, uh, the, the pre-hearing joint meetings of the experts to try to try to get points of agreement and disagreement rather than getting the two competing experts knocking heads together, this, this, uh, uh, this technical facilitator would, would, will meet with the, the different experts, maybe say three different sessions for the three different uh, disciplines and, 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 um, and prepare, have the responsibility of preparing the, uh, the, the joint report for, for the hearing. And uh, with the uh, agreement of the parties, um, may also act as a tutor for the uh, decision maker, uh, uh, so in the arbitration hearing, the uh, expert would sit with the, the arbitrator or panel of arbitrators and um, may even uh, ask questions. Um, again, it's all, it's all a matter of the agreement of the, of the parties. I know this, was, this process was adopted in the, the recent bushfire case in uh, the Supreme Court by, by a judge, but this has been done, done by arbitrators for, for some time. Uh, Judge, you might comment as well. I'm particularly interested also because uh, the Supreme Court um, use of expert referees and, and appointees 
Yeah, I was just thinking, uh, Albert mentioned the bushfire case, I was just thinking about that. Uh, yeah, Justice Jack Forrest, at once at various stages in the bushfire case, actually had some technical advisors sitting, sitting with him on the bench. Um, again, I, I think there's not, there's not a lot of difference between the approach now between arbitration and the courts with expert evidence. The problem that both processes face is the renter expert to say whatever you want the expert to say. Uh, and that's, that's a problem. And then if, if you've got a, a, a non-technical uh, judge or arbitrator, you, you think you, you've got somebody who's not an expert trying to sort out two pieces of expert evidence, which is not absolutely ideal. In, in recent times, I've been trying to address that uh, by sending matters out to special referees, which was a practice uh, adopted very extensively in New South Wales that time 20 years ago. We, for various reasons, seem to stopped doing it in about 10, 10 years or so ago in Victoria, but I've used it quite extensively since then. Uh, and it's been very successful. You, you pick, get the party's agreement to the right expert special referee and, and let the expert technical person determine the matter. Well, they don't, they don't determine the matter, they bring a report back to the court, but you, the courts are very reluctant to interfere with the report unless there's some good reason to not accept it. So as long as that regimes adopted, it's, it's very cost effective. But apart from other things, expert conclaves, hot tubs, concurrent evidence of experts, I mean, it's all being done in the courts here as it's been done in arbitration. Perhaps before I forget, Bronwyn's warning comments following my comments last time, I entirely agree. Uh, and the similarity between what we can do as courts here and what arbitrators can do is very much focused on the domestic system, really, because you can get yourself into some real problems in international litigation in courts and jurisdictions that you're not familiar with. This, um, this discussion on flexibility and obviously there's a range of approaches that can be adopted. You mentioned stop clock, referees, expert facilitation. Um, how interventionalist should or can you know, the judge and arbitrator be in shaping the dispute process for the parties? Or is that really something which the parties should shape for themselves? And I'll sort of put a proposition to you in answering, and I'll actually ask each of you to comment on this. Um, you know, are legal advisors brave enough uh, in the, you know, the direction or advice they give their clients to embrace some of these perhaps newer or uh, more challenging uh, ways to fast track an end result? And my stuff. I was thinking as, you, um, I was thinking as you asked that question that one way to um, focus, uh, with all due respect to all the clients in the room here, but to focus clients on thinking about how um, arbitration or litigation or how the dispute process might best serve their ends and get a result in a quick way, so efficiently without um, costing too much money, is to focus on the money. Um, and so, uh, I think that as a practitioner, you do have an obligation to actually, as I said at the start, to talk to people and say it's your process, particularly where you're drafting an arbitration clause. It's your process, so you should think about how you want it to run. I think as an arbitrator, that if you have parties sitting in front of you and you can see things going um, you know, go off the rails in terms of efficiency, um, you do have some sort of obligation to raise with the parties and with counsel put ideas on the table that you've seen um, work in the past. It may not work, um, ultimately it's the party's 
dispute process, but I do think you have an obligation, and it's particularly important if you're going to promote arbitration, um, to be brave um, in a number of respects, both as counsel and as a client and as the arbitrator hearing the dispute. I think both arbitrators and judges have that same obligation. And I think we have, as arbitrators, do regular directions hearings in the commercial court. And it is a matter of uh, putting things on the table and explaining to people what might be a good idea or a bad idea. And of course, the, the, the best way to proceed is, is not to be coercing people into a procedure, but getting people to think about it and come to their own views as to sort of nudging it along to you know, an efficient procedure. Uh, I, think, I think that's the way to go, really. I tried, you mentioned the money, without mentioning names, had a, had a case uh, not so long ago which was consuming vast amounts of money and I decided to get out the English white book and look at their uh, regime where uh, there's sort of litigation budgets and the courts established a litigation budget which we don't quite do here and, and I uh, made orders for them to actually sort of work out how much all this was going to cost and send it out to a judicial referee. I thought, well, this, this would be beneficial. I'd see how much money they're, they're burning and come to some sensible arrangement. Well, it didn't work, but I might use it again. <laughs> <laughs> well, on, on that note, uh, in fact, uh, arbitrators in the Australian arbitration, both domestic and international, have the power to cap recoverable costs, that is, the recoverable costs of the successful party. Um, and uh, it's my view that if you're an arbitrator uh, and um, your fees are capped, or um, that is um, determined as a proportion of the amount in dispute, and you get the parties to um, uh, parties' costs, recoverable costs are capped, then that will drive economic efficiency because there's no one no one's interest to draw this this um, proceeding out. Uh, so under the Act, what, what you would do as an arbitrator is that you, um, you, you, you would invite submissions from the parties as to whether um, the, the cost should be, uh, recoverable cost should be capped and um, at, um, at what, what amount. And I've done that uh, many times, invited the parties, but I've never had any takers, um, which is uh, disappointing. But, so that, that's on the budget issue. On the other issue is I think it's very important for the clients to be intimately involved in the, um, especially the first directions hearing as to, uh, which will shape how the arbitration uh, is going to, is going to um, uh, pan out uh, and not just leave it to the lawyers. Because although we talk about party autonomy and with respect to the lawyers in the room, um, sometimes that's really, we're talking about lawyers' autonomy. And the lawyers shape the process to suit their, their convenience and not the party's ultimate um, convenience. I've been in arbitrations where at the first directions hearing I've said to the parties, What's the estimate of duration? The council, one party says, oh, 10 days. The other council says, said, uh, 15 days. And the client said, what? I said, oh, let's just adjourn the hearing for a moment. And they came back 20 minutes later and said, well, we agree on seven days. So you know, if the parties hadn't been there, they might have ended up with a 10 to 15 day hearing. Um, so parties should really be involved in shaping the arbitration and really questioning their lawyers as to whether, you know, do we need three rounds of submissions? You know. Uh, Everything should be proportionate to the complexity and the amount of dispute. There was passing reference earlier to um, the importance of mediation being included in the, in the dispute process in a, in a formal sense. Um, there are also uh, 
trends, for example, there's a, a process out there referred to as MedArb. Um, and um, there are also um, the use of dispute review boards, for example, on large projects where a, a pre-appointed panel of, say, three experts look after a project and are available to the parties to both decide but also facilitate and mediate disputes. I'm, I'm interested in your comments on uh, wearing both hats and uh, if you think that's effective uh, or, um, or otherwise. I might start with you, Bob. I have a quite strong view on this. Uh, what the, the primary um, point is that mediation, I think, is always useful. Um, and in Australia, it's part of the, the dispute resolution landscape, so that's sort of my primary point. But having said that, I think it's very dangerous for an arbitrator, for example, um, to adopt a practice such as you know, we've seen in um, a number of Asian countries for a number of years where an arbitrator can stop an arbitration and then step down and act as a, a mediator. And then um, if the matter doesn't resolve, they get back uh, or put their hat back on as an arbitrator. And I think there are all sorts of risks with that, um, particularly if there's confidential information disclosed, um, how do you set aside what you've been told as a mediator, um, which is a lot more open than, of course, what you would hear when you're sitting as an arbitrator? Um, put that aside and then make your decision or issue your award. Um, it seems to me that it is far more sensible to actually have two distinct processes and for the sake of engaging someone who is an expert in mediation, standing down the matter for half a day or a day, allowing the parties to take part in a mediation. Um, that would be my preferred course in, um, in every case. Yeah, I entirely agree. I, I think uh, both arbitrators and judges should uh, be interventionists in the early directions hearings and encourage parties to try a mediation. Uh, judges can direct it, maybe arbitrators less so, but the legislation uh, right back from, to the 84 Act in uh, Victoria uh, provides for or enables arbitrators to be fairly interventionist in the sense of directing parties to mediation. I, I did actually uh, conduct that in the middle of an arbitration at the pressing request of the parties. Uh, as, as arbitrator, I, we had a day of mediation. Uh, I said I was prepared to do it, uh, but only with, with no confidential sessions, no private sessions, uh, simply open sessions, and I, I said I didn't want the experts to come along and tell me that their expert evidence was actually nonsense and, you know, <laughs> so, because to, if it didn't settle I was going to have to continue with the arbitration, which it didn't settle and I, I did continue with the arbitration and it was uh, published an award, it was never appealed and everyone seemed quite happy. But I think, I think uh, the problem is that perhaps on the issue of some of the Asian med arb situations which seem very unsatisfactory, you actually compromise both processes. Because mediation works, I think, because you have the mixture of open sessions and confidential sessions, and you have someone, the mediator, who can see each party's cards and, and nudge them to a, a, a common position, if, if possible. But if, if, if you go into MedArb, I think private sessioning, sessions are really not possible because you're going to hear things that would make it impossible to continue as an arbitrator, which means you lose that whole essential engine of the mediation. So, so you compromise the mediation, 
of course, you, you potentially seriously compromise the arbitration because you might hear things and pretend you put them out of your mind. But you know, that, that's pretty ambitious, really. Once you've heard something that's damaging, it's very hard to forget about. Yeah. I, I have a slightly more relaxed view than my panelists. I think we need to appreciate that uh, it's a combination. I think we, we need to be a bit more uh, receptive to hybrid processes, not only um, combining mediation with arbitration, but um, mediation with uh, expert determination, both binding and, and um, non-binding. Uh, you can craft your process. I had a very, just slightly off, off the track, I had a, a dispute where the issue, construction case, the issue was the interpretation of, of, of a contract. Uh, a lot of money turned on it. Uh, the parties agreed to appoint a retired High Court judge as their neutral, and they crafted the process. We crafted the process. The process was: we will have a mini trial before you, take half a day, and then uh, uh, 24 hours later, you give us a short opinion, and then we resume uh, a day later for a mediation. And you're the mediator. The case settled. So that's uh, combining a mediation with a non-binding expert determination. Uh, so I think we need to be receptive. I wholly accept that there are real difficulties in uh, combining uh, an with the arbitrator changing hats and conducting a mediation with um, private sessions. Although the Act, the Domestic Arbitration Act, allows that to happen. It's very difficult to put things out of your, your mind, but um, it, this process happens in Germany, it happens in China, it's, uh, it's allowed by statute. In Hong Kong and Singapore, you can do it, but if you receive material information in the private session, you're under an obligation to reveal it to the parties. And, and my uh, anecdotal evidence suggests that's not a very popular process um, in those countries for that reason, because it's like it has a chilling effect. No one's going to, in a mediation, is going to say something um, to, to, to the arbitrator in, in that private session if they know it's going to be revealed. But I think you can combine, uh, without risk, combine arbitration with mediation if you forego the private sessions. So that, that, and I agree with Justice Crawford, that does um, reduce the effectiveness of the, of the, um, of the, the mediation, but uh, you can imagine a long-running arbitration to get a new person in as mediator, for them to come up to speed is going to be very difficult. Um, uh, in those circumstances, what you could do is have a moratorium in the arbitration, the arbitrator comes the mediator, you have a roundtable discussion, nothing private to say to the arbitrator, and you see whether you can resolve the dispute, and if it doesn't resolve, you're back uh, and acting as an arbitrator. But I think we need to be a bit more flexible and open-minded in how we resolve disputes, and um, uh, but, all, but also um, heeding the, the, the cautions that my co-panelists have, have mentioned. Can I, can I just add, oh sorry. Yeah. Uh, I think you can combine other processes. I absolutely disagree with combining mediation and arbitration. But I, I was, as a silk, a mediator in a, a, a very large dispute between two major companies a number of years ago now. We had a two-day mediation. It raised some really complex technical and contractual issues. And, and the two parties desperately wanted to settle it. But it was, was kind of, you know, pick a number out of the sky or something and, and how, how could they justify that to their two boards? So what they eventually decided to do, they came to me and said, look, we've, we've proposed nine questions and, and some limited document, documentation provided by each party in relation to the nine questions. And basically we want you to say, 
on the, on, on the basis of the admittedly limited material you've got, what do you reckon the Supreme Court would say to each of those nine questions? So I wrote quite a long opinion as to what I thought the court would say in relation to those nine questions. We then got back together uh, as in the mediation uh, and they looked at it and they, they settled it. It was a multi, multi-million dollar dispute. It would have cost a fortune to run in court. And, and because they then had some rational basis to take to the boards, they, they settled it. And, and that, that was, I mean, you, you can't be imaginative in like other processes which don't raise the sort of issues that we, we raise with mediation and arbitration. Yes, I think, uh, Albert, you mentioned expert determination. In my experience, any purportedly robust third-party opinion has the real capacity to bring parties together because if you selected them and you asked them to tell you something, um, it's very difficult to ignore it. I'm just uh, interested to hear where you would um, uh, recommend to clients the use of these other processes. So we've talked arbitration, we've talked litigation. Expert determination is something I get asked about increasingly particularly in the context where, uh, coming from a construction background, a job is being built, and the real concern is that things just come to a halt, and you need quick answers to allow you to move on, and often expert determination is presented as a solution to that. Um, perhaps you might comment on um, that. Well, yeah, there's a... And, and the difficulties in using expert determination. Well, expert determination, like arbitration, um, re results in a binding determination, unlike mediation, where it's uh, really up to the parties. The mediator doesn't impose a result. Um, I, I think it's very difficult to um, properly, um, and to, well, to anticipate what sort of disputes are going to arise on a construction project, etc. You can do your best in your in your dispute resolution clause, but the best the best time to um, to, to devise the appropriate uh, dispute resolution mechanism is after the particular dispute has arisen. The problem is that the parties may not agree at that stage as to how to resolve because the losing party, there may be a, a, an obvious losing party, that party will not agree to anything and will just draw, draw it out. But expert determination, I did one recently, um, it's, it can be, usually is a lot quicker than arbitration because you don't, you don't need to have an oral hearing, you don't have witnesses um, um, and um, so an arbitrator will act effectively like a, a quasi-judicial officer affording natural justice. There's natural justice and expert determination, but nowhere near the, uh, the procedural fairness natural justice required in conducting an arbitration or litigation. But where expert determination falls down is that it's not a, a great way of determining factual disputes. Because it's like statutory adjudication in those familiar in the construction field. You don't have, you're not going to have the ability uh, to listen to witnesses, uh, hear them cross-examined, you've got to make, it's a rough and ready process to determine factual disputes. So it's best, uh, best suited to cases where there's a green statement of facts and then there's a question that'll turn on uh, well, the question of law, um, I think, or, or a technical dispute. Um, it might be some, a particular engineering or other expert question where you might get a particular expert in that area of expertise to determine. Well, um on that note, I think, I mean, in conclusion, what we've heard today are some really interesting insights and perspectives from different uh, roles in the dispute uh, resolution uh, process. 
And uh, I think we can see that um, arbitration courts all offer a, a range of, of solutions and flexibility, and it's a matter of really uh, appreciating the nuance uh, and actually turning your mind to this. And, uh, and perhaps uh, Albert's uh, thankful recommendation that you seek legal advice when you are uh, <laughs> making decisions. Um, I'll distribute my card. <laughs> <laughs> um, on that note, I won't uh, take more of your time. Obviously, the, the panel members, I think, will be around for a little while after this, but also there's a, there's a number of uh, cause lawyers in the room, and no doubt be happy to answer questions as well on this process. But I would like you, um, to thank each of our panel members in the usual way. And uh, we thank you very much for your attendance this morning, and uh, you will receive uh, um, notice of um, future sessions which, uh, which we host like this um, each quarter. So we look forward to seeing you in the future. This podcast is for reference purposes only. It does not contain legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. You should always obtain legal advice about your specific circumstances.